This is an ABC podcast. Hello and welcome to this week's Health Report with me, Norman Swan. And me, Tegan Taylor. Today, laser treatment for vaginal rejuvenation. Clinical trial results which might save you time, money and discomfort. And while there, we might ask about cosmetic surgery too. Whether breast cancer screening could be better targeted, urinary incontinence, it doesn't just affect new mums and it's keeping a lot of women from exercise. And whether premature menopause, say under the age of 40, is a risk factor for heart disease later in life. When GPs decide if men or women should have blood pressure or cholesterol medications or intensive lifestyle interventions, they're supposed to calculate the person's risk of having a heart attack or stroke in the next five or ten years. It's called an absolute risk score, taking account of a variety of factors, including age, cholesterol and blood pressure, among others. The question a group of US researchers asked recently was whether in women, premature menopause should be added to the risk score. Dr. Sadia Khan is a cardiologist at Northwestern University in Chicago. Thanks for having me. I thought it was a myth that menopause had any relationship to heart disease at all in women, perpetuated by the industry that wants hormone replacement, that it's just age like men, it's just that women get it later than men. Before we get on to premature menopause, is there any relationship at all to menopause and heart disease in women beyond just the fact that women are getting older? It's a great point. And I think some of the challenge has been whether or not treating menopausal symptoms with estrogen actually reduces risk. And so I think that's where the pendulum has swung back and forth quite a bit, where initially treatment with estrogen was thought to be beneficial because perhaps it would improve risk factor levels, lower cholesterol levels, and turned out that treatment actually increased the risk of clots and stroke and was not beneficial. But in general, we know that the menopausal transition and that time is very prone for increasing cardiovascular risk because of the hormonal changes that lead to increases in cholesterol level, the potential for increases in weight, independent of the aging process itself. How did you do the study? We looked at the Lifetime Risk Pooling Project that has data from several population-based cohorts. And these are data sources that had inquired about menopause, age at menopause, and had access to data on all of the cardiovascular risk factors and individuals that had been followed for cardiovascular disease already. So we used a data source that was already available to us. And in terms of this risk score, before you added premature menopause to see if it made any difference, because you could see what happened to these women in the next few years. So you could go back and see whether if you'd added it then would it have made a difference. What were the other risks that were part of this risk assessment? This is based on what the U.S. currently uses. And so the factors that go into this risk score already include age, blood pressure, treatment for diabetes, cholesterol. So all the risk factors that we know are causally related with cardiovascular disease were already being incorporated in this risk score. And when you added premature menopause? We didn't see a difference in risk prediction. So there's an important distinction between whether or not premature menopause was associated with cardiovascular disease, which we did see, but it didn't make a difference in how well the model predicted risk. So that's reassuring that you don't need to change the risk scores, and they're very similar to the risk scores that Australian general practitioners, family doctors would administer to their patients. But what does it mean for the potency, if you like, of premature menopause relative to other risk factors. So you've got age, you've got cholesterol, you've got diabetes. Does that mean it doesn't overwhelm those? It's a weaker risk factor? That's a great question. And it's one that comes up a lot in risk prediction in general. So I don't know if you're familiar with this high sensitivity CRP, 
which is a biomarker that had a lot of attention in the last several decades. And many questions were asked because it was seemed like it was a very potent risk marker as well for cardiovascular disease. This is a marker for inflammation. In other words, is your immune system turned on? And the idea here is if your immune system is turned on, it's more likely to cause inflammation. It's more likely to make atherosclerosis worse. Yeah, there was a lot of excitement that perhaps this could help us better predict who is going to go on to get cardiovascular disease. Now, why am I telling you this story? Because it turns out a very similar thing happened for high sensitivity CRP. It looked really promising, but when you already have a model that performs really well and you have age, which is such an important risk factor, blood pressure, cholesterol, smoking status already in the model, it's really hard to improve that model. So it doesn't mean that premature menopause or high sensitivity CRP are not potent risk markers with future risk of cardiovascular disease. They're just not strong enough to add value when you've already accounted for the key factors that we know contribute to cardiovascular disease. Moving away from the risk score, if you're a woman listening to our conversation and you are going through menopause under the age of 40 or you did go through menopause under the age of 40, what's the message for you? You're a preventive cardiologist. That should still be a alarm bell to say, well, perhaps the risk may be low and the risk score itself doesn't need to be adjusted or adapted. But we know that this is a sensitive marker and is underlying future risk for cardiovascular disease. We hope that this should be used as a risk-enhancing factor. Sorry to interrupt you, but GPs are supposed to use this to decide whether or not you're going to prescribe an anti-blood pressure medication or an anti-statin medication or really go hard on your lifestyle. And I'll liken it to uh, an interview I did a couple of weeks ago, which was on 30-year-olds with a high low-density lipoprotein, in other words, the bad form of cholesterol, which shows that if it's up then, then you are actually silting up your arteries for the future. So does it mean, if you're a woman with premature mature menopause, that your trigger for treating you with cholesterol is lower than somebody who hasn't had a premature menopause. Absolutely. I think that's the takeaway message is that this should help identify somebody that potentially intensifying preventive therapies, treating that blood pressure to a lower goal, getting on statin lipid lowering therapies earlier may be beneficial in the long term, but requires a clinician-patient discussion. So it's not an absolute, it's relative depending on your own priorities and values. Exactly. And I think personalizing that, but using this as a signal that there is more risk than we're probably assessing from just the risk factors alone. Well, Sadie Khan, thanks very much for joining us on the show. Yeah, of course. Thanks so much for having me. Dr. Sadia Khan is a preventive cardiologist and cardiovascular epidemiologist at the Feinberg School of Medicine at Northwestern University in Chicago. You're listening to RN's Health Report. There's a thriving market out there selling laser treatment to women with vaginal symptoms, claiming it rejuvenates the tissue. Professor Jason Abbott led a clinical trial into the technology, which is called fractional carbon dioxide laser. Jason is Professor of Gynecological Surgery at the University of New South Wales, and welcome to The Health Report. Thanks, Norman. Thanks for having me. What are these symptoms that women are complaining of that this laser purports to treat? So vaginal symptoms of menopause are incredibly common. They occur in about 50% of women who reach menopause, and let's face it, all women who live long enough will get there. And these include things like vaginal dryness, uh, pain with intercourse, burning and itching in the vaginal area. And this treatment, what, 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 is, the, what is the treatment being offered? 
Yeah, so probably in the last seven or eight years, laser treatment emerged as one of a, a range of new technologies that looked at specifically addressing some of these symptoms. And you're quite right in the introduction, saying that it rejuvenated the tissues. Really what they're trying to do is damage the tissues. So when the tissues heal, it heals in a, you know, in a better way so that the tissues are more functional. And it helps to hopefully reduce those symptoms so that it acts a little bit more like premenopausal vaginal tissue rather than postmenopausal vaginal tissue. And the, the, the companies were making claims that about 75 to 100 percent of women were getting improvement in their symptoms. Uh, and so that's really what we decided to do the study on to compare laser treatment against a sham or placebo to see if, in fact, these were substantiated claims. And, and how much, how often do you get the treatment? I mean, what, 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 were the, mm. what was the dose that you tried? Yeah, so this is a, a study that looks at sort of three laser treatments over a period of about three months. So you get uh, a laser treatment into the vagina every four weeks or so. And a little bit like uh, people use laser treatment for cosmetics on their face, the idea is that damaged skin heals, then you damage it, then it heals, and so and so. And so the idea is that after between four and 12 months, that skin that has been damaged by the laser treatments into the vagina uh, is so good that it will really improve the symptoms for the woman and reduce those symptoms. And the laser treatment doesn't burn all of the vaginal tissue. It's only a very small portion of the tissue. Um, and so that's sort of one of the safety aspects. You're not creating a, a widespread, dense burn. It really is quite a localised treatment to try and generate that new tissue growth. So, so, you did, so in other words, the woman nor the operator knew whether or not you were actually firing off a real laser. And so it was randomised. What did yep. you find? Yeah, so the idea of this type of study is that we wanted to do it in a, in a way that no one knew anything, really. So we did laser on half of the participants in the study and the other half we did a sham laser treatment where they had the, the laser probe inserted into the vagina uh, and everything else looked exactly the same but they didn't know what treatment they were getting and during the course of the follow-up we didn't know what treatment they had had so we couldn't uh, influence the patients in any way and we looked at really three broad areas of outcomes. They were the woman's symptoms, her clinical symptoms and whether she had that dryness or pain with intercourse and whether she got some improvement. We looked at what the clinicians thought as well because, you know, just by looking, I mean, I'm a vagina doctor, so, you know, this is what I do all day and really looking at those tissues, could we see any difference to the vagina? And the third aspect that we looked at was... Um, we took skin samples from the vagina and we asked a pathologist to have a look at them under a microscope. And what we found in each of those three areas at the end of the study that there was no difference, no discernible difference at all between the laser group and that sham or placebo group. So we didn't find any improvement in their symptoms, what the clinicians were looking at, or indeed the pathology of uh, what that skin looked like under a microscope. But they both improved, but there was no difference between them. So you've got a placebo effect effectively. Yeah, correct. And look, this placebo effect is very well known, Norman, in, in, in all areas. And we've seen it in, in device trials and in surgery trials as well previously. And that, that classically gives you somewhere between 20 and 35% improvement. And we absolutely saw those rates of change. And both groups improved in their symptoms, but we didn't see a difference between the two groups, even though half had not had the laser treatment done at all. And what's the, co if you were to 
get this treatment out in the general market? What's the mm. cost of it? So the cost is between two and a half thousand and four thousand dollars for the for the full course of the three treatments. And so it's, it's an expensive treatment. And it's given by a gynecologist. So it's uh, often given by gynecologists, but not e exclusively by gynecologists. And certainly there are other people who are marketing it uh, and it's done in cosmetics clinics as well. So people who uh, would do laser for other reasons, for example. What's the alternative? Because these symptoms mm. are real. Uh, look, these are absolutely real symptoms and there's no doubt about that and I think that's the most important thing when women are presenting with postmenopausal symptoms that we talk to them and we, we list the various options and they are going to include things like topical oestrogen cream and you know for the same reason that we think that premenopausal vaginal skin works better than postmenopausal vaginal skin if you think about menopause when oestrogen is turned off we can apply oestrogen locally and that seems to work quite well you could use topical lubricants for things like vaginal dryness and pain with intercourse and then strangely enough things like cbt and it sounds very weird but you know cognitive behavioral therapy can work very well for menopausal symptoms. And I think that that's, a, that's something that we need to think about and, and do a lot, whole lot more research into the future as well. By teaching you how to cope better with the symptoms, really. So. Absolutely. And it's, uh, it's no different to many of the other quality of life type approaches that we have, be it chronic pain or in, in lots of uh, other different ways. And just as we see a placebo effect, which is a brain effect, we can affect the way that our brain thinks about the symptoms and get improvement in those as an outcome. So since I've got you... Um, what are you seeing with, uh, apparently there's an epidemic of vulvoplasty going on, in other words, women having their, or labiaplasty, having cosmetic surgery to the, the, to the vulval area. Are you seeing mm. that? We certainly have seen an uptick in the number of women who are uh, either having or considering labiaplasty as a, as a cosmetic procedure. And this is something different to why they might have it as a medical procedure if they've got disproportion in the, in the labia. Uh, it's generally done by plastic surgeons or gynecologists. And, uh, you know, it's, it's all about a look more than anything else. And is it a problem? Uh, uh, I think it's a problem if you consider that you're having surgery on a very sensitive part of the, the vulva. And so, you know, the skin here has very high levels of nerve endings, and that can really predispose to, to long-term problems if it's not done correctly. Now, many women are very happy with having a different appearance to their, to their vulva, um, but it's not a necessary thing. And so for the same reason that people might have Botox in their lips or reshaping to their face, it's about how it looks and about how that makes them feel. And, you know, we've just talked about how it makes you feel and that can give some people improvement. So, buyer, just be a bit wary. Buyer, be wary indeed. Jason, thanks for joining us. Norman, it's been a pleasure. Jason Abbott is Professor of Gynaecological Surgery at the University of New South Wales. As a parent of young kids, I spend a fair chunk of my life standing around near trampolines and jumping castles. And there's always at least one kid begging mum to come on and bounce with them. And more often than not, the response is a no, with a muttered aside to the other mums nearby that the pelvic floor isn't what it used to be and she can't even sneeze without crossing her legs these days. But urinary incontinence can actually affect women in any age group. And for many, it means they can stop exercising altogether. Physiotherapist Jodie Daykick from Monash University has been looking at the impact of incontinence on women's participation in exercise. And 
She says more women need to know that the problem is treatable. I spoke with her earlier. Thanks for having me, Tegan. So there's a sense maybe in the general public that incontinence is sort of inevitable after birth or as you age and that it kind of really only happens among women who are older, who've had kids. But your research is showing that neither of those is really true, is it? That's right. So what we know is one in four women across their lifespan will experience some form of pelvic floor symptoms. So it is common to experience those symptoms. But as you mentioned, it's not just in women that have had children, although that is a sort of a risk factor or a period where symptoms often develop. But what we're finding is that it's really quite prevalent in younger groups as well. For example, young females that are engaging in high impact exercise, you know, one in three women across all sports, including and those younger athletes are experiencing symptoms. And in, say, for example, gymnasts or um, high-impact athletes, up to 80% are experiencing symptoms pre-childbirth as well. So it's a really prevalent condition across all age groups. What's causing it? Is it poor technique or is it just the fact that this happens sometimes to bodies that are under high impact? Yeah, so that's a really good question and we don't actually know the answer to that yet. There's a lot of research needed in this space. We know that when people engage in exercise and when you exert yourself, you get a rise in intra-abdominal pressure. For example, if you jump or lift, your intra-abdominal pressure rises and you get a downward pressure against your pelvic floor. And so to be able to maintain continence and to be able to support our pelvic organs, we need to generate a counter pressure to that. So our pelvic floor muscles pre-contract and that helps us to maintain continence. What we don't know is why some women who are playing sport or high impact sport will experience pelvic floor symptoms and have some leaking of urine and others don't. And there's likely to be a number of factors that play into that. But what we do know is that it is really, really prevalent in women who are engaging in exercise and that it does impact their participation in exercise. That makes sense. You know, if you're thinking you're going to leak, you're not going to want to participate. But does that sort of become a bit of a vicious cycle? Because I'm imagining that exercise is also protective. Yeah, well, obviously exercise for women and for all people is really, really important for a number of reasons for, you know, our mental and physical health. And we know that women have lower rates of physical activity and they participate less in organised and team sports. And so, as you can imagine, if you're experiencing symptoms in those situations, it can lead to you not wanting to continue participating, understand exercising, at least in a sort of a general exercise, um, you'll have similar or even potentially stronger pelvic floor muscles than people that are sedentary or not active. But it may be that there's sort of a threshold where if you're doing very high impact exercise and you've potentially got some other risk factors at play, that that could cause you then to develop symptoms during exercise. Presumably people who aren't exercising like the people who are sedentary maybe are sedentary because they have weak pelvic floor as well. Yeah, so our research has looked into that. So what we've been interested in is for women that do experience pelvic floor symptoms, what impact does that have on their exercise participation? And we found that one in two women who experience pelvic floor symptoms during exercise have then gone on to stop a form of exercise. And that was across all age groups as well, not just in the postnatal group, um, but in younger women who had yet to have children and across all age categories. It was a really crucial barrier to exercise participation. So what's the answer here? Is it that women need to be doing things differently or people's exercise participation varies a lot? Some people are exercising independently. Some people are working with trainers or in group fitness classes. 
there's probably a number of strategies to helping women to be able to address this. So we know that women have really low self-disclosure rates. And part of the reasons for that, our, our research told us, was they may feel embarrassed. or So this um, is them feeling confident to tell someone that they're experiencing this? Correct. So some of it is coming from embarrassment. But the other thing that we found was that a lot of women weren't sure who they should tell. They hadn't been presented with an opportunity to disclose their symptoms. No one had asked them, but you know they may have been quite willing to disclose their symptoms if they'd been asked. And also they just weren't aware of what management options were available to them. Sometimes that perception that because it's a, a common symptom that it's normal and that we have to accept that. So a lot of women do suffer in silence, but actually there are conservative management options that are really highly effective um, and can reduce and cure the symptoms of pelvic floor disorders. So you said just then really kind of casually that there's some really easy conservative care management symptoms and I'm sure that there's women listening going, what? Like, tell me what they are. So can you give us a quick rundown of what those sorts of things are? So we know that, for example, pelvic floor muscle training, which is a, a form of exercise that helps to specifically strengthen and target our pelvic floor muscles, is really highly effective in reducing and curing the symptoms, for example, of urinary incontinence. They're targeted exercises that are really uh, helpful in strengthening those pelvic floor muscles. By strengthening our pelvic floor muscles, we can counteract that increase in abdominal pressure that leads to symptoms when, when we're exerting ourselves. And we've got really really great evidence in community dwelling women that doing these exercises can stop leaking urine when we cough and sneeze and exert ourselves. And it's highly likely, although more research is needed, to look into does that then work if we want to return to high impact exercise as well. So pelvic floor exercises, what else? we really need to target our management strategies to the individuals. Even with pelvic floor muscle training, we know that one in three women can struggle to get the right muscles. It's hard to tell whether those muscles are working correctly. And a lot of women find it really hard to know, am I getting this right? Seeking advice and help from a specialist. So for example, a pelvic floor physiotherapist, they're physiotherapists that have special training in this region. They can assess and give you a tailored exercise program or a tailored management program that can help to address the symptoms, assessing exactly what is going to work best for you. Jody Daykick is a lecturer and PhD candidate at the Department of Physiotherapy at Monash University. As you get older, your risk of breast cancer increases. Genes like the BRCA1 and 2 and your family history also increase your risk. But there are actually many factors that each nudge up your risk of breast cancer. And some experts say we should take more of these into account when deciding how and how frequently to do screening. In fact, the brightness of your breast screen itself could even hint at your future risk of cancer. Researchers, including John Hopper from the University of Melbourne, say artificial intelligence could help combine these factors to tailor screening to an individual. And he joins us now. Hi, John. Evening, Tegan. So you're arguing that we should take a risk-stratified approach to breast screening. We kind of already do that with age and family history. What should we be adding into the mix? Yes, age was fixed as a risk factor and, and studied by clinical trials many years ago. And since then, we've learned a hell of a lot about risk of breast cancer. What's exciting now is that it appears that there's all this information about risk and including risk of having a cancer missed in the mammogram itself. And slowly we're unravelling that so that with digital mammography, that sort of information can be available at the time that the radiologist is looking at the, at the scan. So you're looking at uh, this brightness factor. How does that 
predict or indicate someone's risk? Originally, people had realised that the whiteness of a breast, how much white on the on the breast was very important because it was hiding cancers. But it also seemed to be predicting future cancers, which was strange. It was like a, a paradox. So we looked at not just the white areas, but the bright areas and the brightest areas. And we found it was the brightest areas that were really telling us about future risk. The white areas were telling us about cancers being missed before the next scan, but the bright areas were telling us something about future risk. So this feels like something that's sort of a little nebulous. And so you're using, you're advocating for the use of artificial intelligence to help corral this data and create a, a single sort of individual approach to cancer risk. Do you have models around how that would work? Well, first of all, we, we, we looked at the, the brightness and we just asked the computer to tell us what was going on and it found other features that we, you, know, you can't detect, humans can't detect, but the computer can see. So it's not just about brightness. Suddenly we opened the door and by allowing the computer to give us answers, we found all sorts of other things. So suddenly the scale on which we can predict is so much stronger. But you've, you've talked about how this might work in practice. There are also other factors such as family history. You mentioned that earlier on. And women fill out family history when they complete their questionnaire for breast screen. So that data could be automatically available at the time of screen as well. So now you're putting multiple aspects of the mammogram plus family history plus age together and th that gives us a basis for planning future screening, not just come back in two years, but it might be one year, it might be three years, we don't know. But the door is open for a more tailored screening based on risk, not just on age. So the BRCA gene is the big one that we've heard a lot about in the last mm. few years, about how much it really multiplies your risk of cancer. When you put together all these different factors that you're talking about, how does that compare to the risk of having that one gene? Well, fortunately, women <laughs> mutations in, in BRCA1 and BRCA2 are quite rare. So a very small proportion of women are at that high risk. It's a risk about 10 times population risk, maybe five times at later age. We could find 1.5% of women in Australia who are at the same high risk by using the mammograms and then also sending women who are at high risk because of their mammograms and family history, uh, offering for them genetic testing, which could also... Um, this genetic testing is not just for genes like what we call high-risk mutations, BRCA1, BRCA2, but also a new, a new concept called a polygenic risk score. It's like, like your height or your weight, a, a continuous measure of risk based on hundreds of different genetic markers, each having a small influence on risk, but when put together, give quite a, de a decent amount of risk discrimination across the population. It's not, not terribly expensive to have these genetic tests now. It, it was 20 years ago, but now... Um, if you were at high risk because of your mammograms, especially if your family history, it's um, you know a, a great opportunity, a great well, great importance, and not necessarily very expensive to find out what's your genetic risk. If you're not at high risk, then you're wasting your money looking at genetic risk. But if you're at high risk because of the mammograms, it would be money well spent. You mentioned 1.5%. Um, that's 30,000 women, um, according to the article that you've written recently in the um, Medical Journal of Australia. But with breast screening, there's been criticisms in the past that was evidence to show that there's sometimes overdiagnosis, that people are being yes. diagnosed with cancers, not going to affect them in their lifetime. How do you how do you see this playing into what you're proposing? Well, the other side of this, of course, if you're finding women at high risk, then you must be finding women at low risk. And so we predict that 
you know, we could find half the women who are actually at half population risk. So maybe they don't need mammograms every two years, but maybe every four years. Suddenly, the cost effectiveness would change dramatically. The government would be very thrilled that, that um, you had a more economic way of using mammographic density. And the challenge then is whether the, the system, whether women will actually take up the concept of risk-based screening. And there are trials being conducted in the United States, Europe, UK, on this very issue, offering the women the opportunity to decide if they would have their, their screening based on their risk and then um, using these new techniques to give them proper management uh, decisions. Fascinating. John, thanks so much for joining us. Okay, thank you. Professor John Hopper is NHMRC Senior Principal Research Fellow at the Melbourne School of Population and Global Health. Well, that's a convenient segue, Tegan, into our question and answer session on this podcast because we actually got a question from Gabrielle on breast cancer screening. Yes, indeed. And I promise I didn't set it up this way, but it does seem very fortuitous. And of course, if you've got a question, you can email us healthreport at abc.net.au. But Gabrielle has written in saying, I'm interested in the latest on breast cancer screening and the likelihood of reducing death by breast cancer. Because a few years ago, Norman, uh, there was a two-part health report special on this, basically saying while breast cancer deaths have dropped since the introduction of breast screening, it's less in the target population and more in younger women, more likely related to more effective treatment. And we did talk about, well, you did, I wasn't on the show at this time, about overdiagnosis. But then, of course, there are lots of studies, including one from Sweden that Gabrielle has sent us, saying that, yes, mammography does reduce rates of advanced and fatal breast cancers. So she's 53. She hasn't had a breast screen because of listening to that health report. And she's wondering what the most recent studies are showing. Yeah. So... Look, this, this is a story that goes backwards and forwards, and there are people who are sceptical about breast cancer screening, and Professor Alexandra Barrett, who, Alex Barrett, who was the person who made that series, um, unfurled the, the evidence pro and con uh, breast cancer screening. And one of, the, one of the key issues here is overdiagnosis. So in other words, do you worry more women than you save lives in terms of finding lesions that that are not going to turn into cancer. So there, there is, before I get to the answer here, it's because it is kind of complicated, um, is bre- breast cancer is like m- many cancers, is that you can find a precancerous lesion that in some women will proceed to cancer and in some women it won't. And it's a bit, bit like the early prostate cancer in men. It's a bit like the polyps in, in bowel cancer, in everybody that leads to bowel cancer. Now, it, in a sense, it's easy with bowel cancer. You find blood in the stool when you do the, the fecal occult blood test and you do a colonoscopy. And, if you, and the removal of the polyp is relatively easy with very few side effects and you're kind of done and dusted. And uh, you get a significant reduction in mortality from, from bowel cancer by doing that. For most other, and cervical cancer is the same. You, you find early cancer or pre-cancer, and in some women it's not going to progress, but you, t- you treat them anyway, and it's a relatively simple treatment and with very few side effects. The problem becomes more complicated in breast cancer because when you find the lesion, um, the treatment is not absolutely certain. You can do genetic testing and various other things, but you tend to treat it and the treatment involves 
often chemotherapy, maybe radiation, and is not necessarily straightforward, like just removing a polyp from the bowel. So th these are the pros and cons. The bottom line is, and this Swedish study that uh, Gabrielle quoted is, oh, and by the way, that interview with John is really important because what John is saying there is by using the digital mammography techniques and ascertaining risk according to digital mammography, adding genetics, you're actually going to segregate women into higher risk where it's really worth doing screening. Mm. And then you might find other women who are at really low risk and you only, um, and you only actually end up with uh, you know, relatively few t uh, mammograms, which much, some women would be quite grateful for because it could be uncomfortable. Um, and so the, that starts to change the story. But even with mammography as it is, this uh, study of about 540,000 uh, women in Sweden who were undergoing uh, regular mammography screening found a 40% reduction in the risk of dying of breast cancer in 10 years and a 25% reduction in the rate of advanced breast cancers. So the, the, the benefit is there. And um, if I was a woman, I'd be having breast cancer screening. So, Gabrielle, maybe um, please go out and get a breast screen. Yeah, and Gabrielle was obviously concerned about it and, and has dug up the study, and this is one of the better studies. So on from breast cancer to osteoporosis, another thing that is often experienced by women, Bronca has written in saying that they had a bone density scan two years ago. They'd reached 70. It showed that they had a bit of osteopenia, which if I'm right, Norman, is like a bone loss. Yeah, it's just the beginning of bone loss. And so they increased their calcium intake. They increased their vitamin D. Um, they were sort of borderline normal. <laughs> Bronca says they probably should have gone to the gym and or done Pilates, but didn't bother because they were already exercising a lot. Two years later has it's progressed to osteoporosis. And the doctor says um, that she should go on medication. She's worried about hip break. Uh, um, she's worried that Bronca's going to break their hip. She doesn't think that exercise is going to help build the bones anymore. So do you think it's too silly to try harder for another couple of years and leave off the medication? I can't give Bronca advice on this. I mean, this is where angels fear to tread. I mean, you've really got to see a specialist in this. And if you're not happy with the endocrinologist you've seen, get a second opinion and take that view. The, the medications do work. Um, there has been a tendency to over-treat in this situation. But if you've got recognised osteoporosis and your fracture risk is high, then it is worth considering medication. Um, what sort of medications do you get put on if you've got osteoporosis? So there, there are medications that tend to build the bone and uh, and increase the bone density, and they they. So the complication here with these is the extent to which these treatments prevent fractures, and over the years they have been shown to increase the to decrease the risk of fractures. Vitamin D and calcium have not really been shown to increase to decrease the risk of fractures. So vitamin D and calcium are not very effective treatments for osteopenia. So a lot of people go on it, but probably not much help. If you want to prevent osteoporosis, there are various things that you can do. And it does tend to run in families. They say that slim, fair-haired women are more likely to get osteoporosis, but other, other women can get it, other people can get it too, and men can get it as well. 
before I jump to the prevention, how you know you might have it without having done a bone density scan is that you have a trivial fall and you break a bone. So mm. a, re a really trivial fall and you land in your hand and you've broken your wrist and you think, my God, that wasn't much of a fall. That's a, that's a sign that your bones are too thin, but that's getting, you know, that's pretty late in the affair. So what they say is the best thing for you is weight-bearing exercise that, that has impact on hard ground. So if, I'm, if we're talking to people that are listening who are in their 30s and 40s, jogging, dancing, jumping, uh, those sorts of exercises where you're actually hitting the floor and getting um, a bang on the floor in a sense, that you're, you're getting impact, that is really good for your bones. And obviously a healthy diet as well. Some people say caffeine is not good for the bones. It's controversial. Smoking is really poison for the bones. You really do not want to smoke. Uh, smoke. I wouldn't be so quick to say that exercise is not going to be of benefit because you really want to exercise to strengthen the muscles around your bones and uh, so that you're not going to fall. So you want to do things like Pilates, yoga, walking, get your muscles as strong as possible because you do not want to fall when you've got thinner bones. But you sound as if you may be heading for treatment, but the doctor is the one to, a real doctor, not just a pretend media doctor like me, <laughs> is one to give you the advice, not me. Does the window start to close after a while of, of what you can do to prevent osteoporosis? Well, there's a lot of discussion about that. Maybe we should cover it on the health report and just bring people up to date. So there's this notion of your bone bank, and which is controversial, and that in your early years of life. So, for example, um, if you are athletic and you um, exercise a lot and you have a healthy diet and you don't smoke, you can build up a decent bone bank. If, however, you've got an eating disorder uh, earlier, earlier on in life or you smoke, then you reduce your bone bank. So the things that you, so what, what they argue is that you get to a certain stage of your life, maybe in your late 20s, where the bone that you've got is the bone that you're going to live with. I think people have moved away from that and they recognise that high-impact exercise can actually increase bone density. Vitamin D probably makes no difference. Um, and certainly avoiding smoking is a, is a good idea. And for those of you who've got a family history of osteoporosis, you really want to get onto this and watch that sort of thing probably more intently. I think you're right, Norman. I think we need a, a bit more of a deep dive into it on a future health report. We do, with somebody who knows what they're talking about rather than me. <laughs> well, that's it for this week's health report. Of course, if you've got questions, please send them to healthreport at abc.net.au. We'll see you next time. See you then. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.